Good morning. Open your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 1, please. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you'll find one on the rack underneath the chair in front of you. Probably, if it's not directly in front of you, it's close by. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, you can take that copy for your own. If you accidentally take a hymn book, that's fine too, as long as you know the difference between the two. If you don't, keep coming back. At the end, uh, we're going to actually conclude, not now, but at the end, uh, with two hymns. I've added one because the third stanza of that particular hymn uses one of the words out of the passage we're looking at this morning. That first hymn will be what we call a hymn of response, okay, a hymn of just worship and praise to God. Uh, the last hymn also functions as a response as well. Uh, but during that last hymn, we're going to take up a love offering. Mostly because I forgot to take it last week when our two brothers from Kenya were here. Um, but at the same time, I remembered what Hudson Taylor um, missionary would always do. He would not allow a church to take up a collection for him after he presented the work because he didn't want the giving to reflect mere emotionalism. He wanted people to prayerfully seek the mind of the Lord through the next week or even two weeks before they took up a collection. And I think if you were here last week, uh, you, you got a glimpse of what God is doing throughout the world for his glory. And we saw part of that in East Africa and the regions beyond East Africa. So on the last hymn, if our ushers could be ready to take up a collection, uh, not the not the hymn that immediately follows, but during the last hymn. It's our third sermon in Ephesians. We're still talking about the spiritual blessings that the Father is blessing us with in Jesus Christ for his glory. Ephesians is six chapters. It was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. Chapters one to three presents the gospel story. And like we talked about in our first sermon uh, it presents Ephesians from a height only known up to this point. If you do the dates of when the books were written, uh, Paul had written to the Romans, the, the believers at Rome. Uh, but now you've got Ephesians, two incredible descriptions of the gospel like we've never heard it before. So chapters one to three present the gospel story. Chapters four through six explain how that story, the gospel story, should affect every part of our story. But not just individually, but as a church, there's a lot of instruction coming uh, that we will learn that God desires for us as a church to display his glory that we see in Ephesians. So Ephesians is all about this, and we're going to keep we're going to probably mention this on almost every sermon. It's all about what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for his own glory forever. Jonathan Lehman reminds preachers that they're like mail carriers. Mail carriers only deliver the mail. They don't lick the stamps. They don't write the letters. They simply put the mail in your mailbox. Our mail lady does not write letters to our family. I don't think we've ever gotten a letter from our mail lady. And I don't think she's ever pulled up to our box, even if... Well, we don't have a flag, but if the flag were up, she's not expecting those letters in there to be to her because that's not her job. Her job isn't to write us letters or to receive letters from us. She simply 
picks up the mail and delivers it to the post office to be processed. Preachers are the same way, and in a sense that makes my job easier, though it's not easy, is I simply get to deliver the mail of Ephesians to the inbox of your heart. I didn't write the phrases. I didn't choose the vocabulary. I didn't choose the length of the letters. God breathed out his words to us. And all I'm told to do is rightly handle it like like a letter and deliver it to your heart and your mind. This is a great reminder as we look at Ephesians. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's one of the blessings, I believe, of expositional preaching as we work verse by verse by verse through particular books. We change up the genre. We also change up which testament we preach out of. Some of you came and stayed because we were preaching through the minor prophets. That is the whole counsel of God to us. We don't get to skip phrases. We don't get to jump over ideas. We don't get to avoid difficulties. We, but we get to work through it. The first half of chapter 1 in Ephesians identifies and explains the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. There really is a threefold division. I want you to see this. I want you to have your scriptures open, Ephesians chapter 1, and look at this. There is a threefold division. Verses 4 to 6 shows us the choice of the Father. Verses 7 through 12 show us the redemption of the Son. And verses 13 and 14 show us the seal of the Holy Spirit. This is a natural division within this first part of praise that we find in Ephesians 1. The three persons of the Godhead named, and also because each section ends with a similar refrain, celebrating the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Look at verse 4. It says, even as He which is connected to the previous thought, the Father. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption. That's referring to Jesus Christ, the Son. Look at verse 13. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you have this triunity of God right at the beginning of this amazing letter. Now notice the refrain at the end of each section. Look at verse 6. It says this, to the praise of His glorious grace. It's like like some of the songs we sang this morning. We keep returning to the chorus. We sing the chorus again. We sing another stanza. We sing the chorus. Look at verse 12. To the praise of His glory. And look at verse 14. To the praise of His glory. So you have these, these divisions naturally dividing out. So this morning, here's where we're going. We're going to review the work of the Father... We're going to consider the work of the Son, and next week, Lord willing, we will complete the threefold division by considering the work of the Holy Spirit. The following week, then, we will get into one of, one of Paul's first huge, lengthy prayers. The choosing of the Father. Let's look at this. Look at verse 4. He chose us. There's a subject a verb, and an object. By the way, before your mind digresses, those words should be very comforting to every believer. 
Paul is writing to a group of believers in Ephesus amidst false teaching and rampant idolatry. And he's writing to them, and some of the very first words out of his mouth is, he chose us. Paul includes himself with the Ephesian believers. It's, it's more of a corporate idea. He chose us. Very comforting. And as I said two weeks ago, if, if that ever sounds like bad news, it's being handled and presented wrong. Because this is the good news. The phrase is used elsewhere, and its meaning is clear when read naturally in context. I'm going to read uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That means God made a choice with a knowledge of all the other options. Verse 7 in Deuteronomy 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. You know why God loves you this morning? Because God loves you. Not because He saw some worth that you might have in the future. God loves you because He loves you and He does not not love you because of things you have done. Just like He doesn't love you because of things you have done. Now, He takes pleasure when we trust Him and obey Him. He chooses to take pleasure in His people. But that's different than unconditional love. In the Old Testament, the context shows that a choice is made after all the other options are known. For example, when Lot was given the choice by his uncle to choose which land he would establish himself in. In Genesis 13, verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. The idea is he surveyed that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. It's a deliberate decision among options. Samuel chose David among all of Jesse's sons. David chose five stones among probably a ground full of stones. God chose Israel from among all the nations. This choice is not made in a vacuum, but the choice is made with knowledge among options. Now, it's important to remember that in no case was the person or the brother or the nation not chosen treated with contempt or dislike. When God chose David to be king, his brothers by default were not chosen. But they were not disregarded or treated with contempt. For instance, this is an illustration. By the way, every illustration breaks down, right, at some point. So just don't take this out to the nth degree but what if you were at Park Meadows Mall yesterday on an errand and you happened upon a wealthy lady randomly handing out $100 bills to the people around her? One crisp $100 bill per person. You only get one. She only had 20 of these, right? 20 Benjamins because Benjamin Franklin is on the front of it. 20 Benjamins, but there's only, but there's 42 people. 
That means 22 people did not receive a gift. Let me ask you a question. Would the 22 people be disappointed? Yes. Yes, because Cheesecake Factory is at Park Meadows. And it takes about that much to buy my family lunch, right? So you can use the gift and you can bless others with the gift. So the natural disappointment. But let me ask you, could they accuse her of being unjust or unfair? No. It was hers to hand out. These were her hundreds. She determined beforehand to go to the mall with 20 $100 bills and to hand them out to other people. Do you know what that's called? It's called grace. It's called undeserved benefit or favor. And you know what? Even those who did not receive a $100 bill will go home and praise her. Honey, you'll never believe this. I was at the mall and there was this lady handing out hundreds. Did you get one? No, but it was amazing, right? So you're like glorifying this act of grace. There's a subject, a verb, and an object. He chose us. You should take encouragement in whatever that means in the big, eternal, God-sized plan. It means that he chose you if you're a believer. Look at the timing. Look at verse 4. The verb is clear. The timing before the foundation of the world. This explains when this occurred. This expression, that phrase, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. In John 17, 24, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays this. He's saying this to the Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Listen to this. Before the foundation of the world. That's an important phrase because what we draw from that is the pre-existence of Christ before he was born and a close relationship that he had with the Father. In 1 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter, speaking of Jesus Christ, said he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God had a salvific plan, a redemptive plan. Do you know this? Even before he said, let there be light, or before Satan said to Eve, did God actually say that? Or before Eve took a second glance at the fruit Even before that, God had a plan known before the foundation of the world that his son would perform. Do you know what that's called? Grace. God wasn't caught off guard by the events in the garden. He had a redemptive plan all along. So, and here's an important point. That means we did not get out of our sin slavery by some, some of our own clever design or intelligence or because we were smarter or more godly than other people. God had already planned it from pre-creation eternity. In Revelation 13, 8, listen to these words. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, referring to the beast that is explained earlier in Revelation 13, Everyone will worship it whose name has not been written, listen to this phrase, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Written down 
before the foundation of the world in the book of life. And it's called, it's described as this, of the lamb who was slain. God's redemptive plan all along in his mind in pre-creation eternity. So the timing is clear. The verb to choose is clear. But what is the purpose? Look at verse 4, the latter part. He did all this, whether we fully understand it or not, that we, the church, and the church is comprised of individuals, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is God's purpose for choosing us before the foundation of the world, that we would become something. You know, God's purpose presupposes that humans are unholy, as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But since God has chosen the believer to be his possession and given his spirit to abide in us, the believer should reflect God's unique character. This is what Peter says as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Harold Honer said this, God did not choose anyone because they were holy, but he chose them in order that they might be holy. Look at the last two words of verse four. In love. And this presents a punctuation placement difficulty that exists in verse 4. So the question is, does, do those two words, in love, go with holy and blameless before him in love, which I am certain some of your translations reflect this morning, or does it go with in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons? And some of your translations reflect that placement this morning. Either rendering is true because it's taught in other places in Scripture and neither changes the meaning of the text. But since the focus in Ephesians 1 is on the work of the Father, the activity of the Father, the initiative of the Father, it seems that the ESV is preferable in love. He predestined us. Okay, so that's where that's where I understand the placement of that term to be. But let's not get technical and miss what that word means. What does he mean when he says in love? It's a lot different than like, oh, he's in love. Right. Our our normal street usage of that. The word for love, as most of you already know, in Ephesians is the noun form. And most of you know that Greek word is agape. It's got a verb form as well that sounds similar. That is used ten times in this small letter. The verb form is also used ten times in this small letter. This is the kind of love that makes a free choice to show affection and faithfulness towards an object. There is nothing within the object that would cause this love to be shown, but by the free choice of the one showing love and affection and faithfulness and entering into covenant. That is agape love. By contrast, eros, which also has a verb form from which we get the word erotic, is an impulsive act towards the object and is often self-centered. Or we would say it objectifies the object. And it's selfish 
and self-centered. And I think most of us know we are living in a culture and we are raising young people in an erotic culture. In a pornographic culture. And so one of the lessons we need to teach our children, an example to our children, is the other love, the agape love that chooses to love regardless of worth, regardless of value. There's a description in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, and I, I want you to just listen to this. Just take, take a break and look up, and I'm going to read this. And it is a picture of Israel as an unloved and abandoned child. It's not a well-known text. It's a disturbing description initially. And as I read this, I want you to understand what God, through his prophet, is communicating. And it is not unlike us as individual sinners. Just listen to what he says. As for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Okay, the umbilical cord is not even cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. Picture of a newborn baby in a field with no care. God says this through his prophet, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. When I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. So this picture of him taking this child, this abandoned child now, and entering into a type of marriage covenant. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. That's agape love. In love, God took the initiative and did something for you. Agape love chooses to love regardless of worth or beauty. And in seeking the highest good in the object of the one love, don't miss this, it makes the object beautiful. We're going to see that in Ephesians 5, where husbands lead well and love well, and their wives, like the church, become spotless and beautiful You know what God's choosing eliminates? 
First of all, God's choosing does not eliminate faith or human responsibility or belief. Jesus came preaching, repent and believe as though everybody could. It doesn't remove that. You know what? You know what God's choosing and in love predestining us means and eliminates? It eliminates pride and boasting. You can never say, I got here because of this. All praise and glory goes to the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Titus 3, 4 makes this very clear. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at Ephesians 1, last two words, verse 4, we'll read into verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Another big word, predestined. The word itself, specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit to be inscripturated, means to determine beforehand. That's all it means. In its most general sense, it simply means that God has destined us beforehand to a certain end. And you have to keep both in mind. The end in Ephesians 1 is adoption. Where this word is also used in Romans 8, the end is glorification. So God is predetermining a family relationship, adoption, and God is predetermining glorification, which means even our bodies will be changed in His presence. It's a sequence of God's activity. Let me read you out of Romans 8. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, he also glorified. So what Paul's doing in Romans 8, he's sort of putting forth this sequence. But these are terms of time. And time is also one of God's creations. God's outside of time. God possesses infinity. Which means we are living today. We woke up and we started living a succession of moments. Even while you were asleep, those successions of moments were passing. We will live today by a succession of events. Chronological. Okay, we woke up. I made coffee. I sat in the den. I let the Jack Russells out. I got rid. I came here. A succession of events. That's what it is. Do you know God, because He created time, is outside of His creation? There really is no succession of events with God. He never gets tired. He doesn't age. He never needs to catch his breath. The sun never sets on his day because he's God. So these terms are describing for us in a way that we can try to comprehend God's gracious activity in initiating salvation. But it's not bound to time because this happened when? Before the foundation of the world. God's 
predestining beforehand for a certain purpose leads to His calling, which is God summoning us to believe in His Son, which leads to His justifying, which is Him legally declaring us as righteous as His Son by faith, which leads to His glorifying us. He is set on bringing all this to an end and bringing us to glory. That means we can depend on it. God has determined it. He's predetermined it. And we can depend on it. This is confidence for the church. This is the this is the most amazing basis for our confident expectation, which is hope that we can ever ask for. The emphasis on adoption in verse five with predestination continues to unfold his purpose. The first purpose we saw earlier on in verse four, that we should be holy and blameless. But he's not just looking for people to be holy and reflect his character. He's actually designing, predetermining that people enter into a family relationship with him. We who were enemies are invited to sit at his table as true children. No wonder the section ends with this. Look at verse six to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's the, that's the choosing of the father. And we're going to look at the redempt or the sacrifice of the son quickly. Look at verse seven in him. Remember, that's the source or the source is from the father. The sphere is in the son. Eleven times in this one sentence, we are reminded these blessings are found in Christ. Jesus is not simply the vehicle to carry us to the blessings. He is the blessing. All those are found in him. What is the specific spiritual blessing mentioned? In him, we have what? What's the next word? Redemption. And we have it through his blood. Two ideas here. I want to sear into your mind. The blessings that we have in Christ are freedom and unaccepted sacrifice. Freedom is going to be a news headline for some of us because we're not free. We are imprisoned and slaves to sin. And sacrifice because we are sinners in need of an atoning sacrifice. Freedom, the need for redemption presupposes humanity is entrapped by sin. This is what redemption is. Liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom. This was familiar in Roman society, but the biblical background goes all the way back to Exodus where God's people are in Egypt. And in Egypt, of course, God is dealing with Pharaoh and finally, they come to the final sign and wonder, which actually is so disturbing, it gets a name. It's called the Passover, where they have to slaughter the lambs and put blood on the doorposts. And the death angel, possibly a band of angels, but at least an angel, when he goes over. And by the way, this sign and wonder is going to affect both the Egyptians and God's people. And it's going to touch the firstborn son. And when the angel moves through that village or through that encampment, when he sees the blood, he does what? He passes over. And if he didn't see the blood, what happened? You can ask Pharaoh. Death of the firstborn. This is where this terminology is taken from. It's as if Paul has in his mind the events of Exodus. 
Because he says we have been liberated by a payment through Christ's blood. Jesus' death was a necessary sacrifice. You know that the Israelites were not only delivered from captivity under Pharaoh, but were spared God's judgment upon their firstborn by shed blood. All that was pointing to, I love what Jesus says in Luke 24, um, when he points back to the books of Moses, that in them, beginning at Moses, contained things concerning me, Jesus says. You're already seeing that in God, before the foundation of the world, his plan of redemption included his son being sent and being offered as a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews had this in mind. Let me read Hebrews 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Now, that just means they're human. Since the children are human, he himself, Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, partook of the same things. He became human. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those. There's that deliverance, that, that liberation, that freedom. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's this idea of freedom and sacrifice. Only possible by Jesus coming and dying on the cross. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul calls Jesus our Passover. In a call towards holy living, he says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Is the blood applied to the doorposts of your soul? If so, death will pass over. Or as we talked about H.A. Ironside's illustration, you're going down the broad road to hell and you see an exit ramp and on the arch says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And you say, yes, and you take the exit ramp and you rear your mirror over that same arch that says God's elect. Do you believe in Him? This is what Jesus teaches in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me, the Father, because He sent Jesus for spiritual blessing, this is what Jesus says, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But what does that mean to us? Keep reading. Look at verse 7, the middle part. It means first that we have forgiveness. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, if I just gave you two minutes this morning and handed out a blank sheet of paper to everybody, and I would say, list every transgression you have ever committed I would probably kind of joke around and say I, I need several packs of paper. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even list everything I've done in 2019. I'm not boasting. If you started listing everything, every, motive, every, every sinful motive, every sinful thought, every word said about somebody else that wasn't loving or fair or right, everything you glanced at twice you shouldn't have, Every time you just had that spirit, I didn't, dis I didn't disobey you, Mom. You know, but the look, yeah, oh yeah, passive, passive. No wonder God in His goodness puts this word here. 
the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Think back to Ezekiel 16. We're the abandoned newborn in the field. And God pours out his grace on us richly in Christ, which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight. We're not only redeemed from something, slavery and punishment, which is incredible by itself, but God redeemed us for something. Unity, not just from something terrible, but for something amazing. I love these two phrases, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Let me ask you, do do those descriptions fit the way you understand and experience God this morning? Or do you still have in your mind that he is a cosmic police officer just waiting to call out an infraction on you? Waiting to handcuff you? Waiting to contradict you? Is this how you understand the Father's love for you? Lavished in riches? Is that how you have received God's posture towards you? First, it means we are forgiven of our trespasses. It doesn't matter what trespasses. We're forgiven. Second, it means we have a wonderful purpose. We have an incredible purpose in God's plan. Do you know that people want to be part of something great? They want to be part of something exciting, something that's moving forward, something that has energy, something that people are talking about, something that is victorious. Do you know that parents aren't scrambling to get their child on a losing sports team? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, in the headlines, parents are not being tried because they bribed to get their children into underwhelming, unknown schools. Right? There's something about human nature. But do you know what we often miss as a church? Right here, we are already part of something amazing. That's what God is doing in the heavenlies. He is bringing these things down. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will. That's something that's, that was hidden and now is revealed according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Not just now, not just 2019 or 2020. So what is God's plan? Keep reading. Verse 10. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That means that God is doing this. God is bringing everything together. He is summing everything up and all of it will be under Christ's authority. Nothing will be excluded, not evil spirits, not rebellious humanity, not arrogant dictators. Nothing will be excluded. All is being brought back together. It's just as Paul wrote to another church from prison, the church at Philippi, when he says this, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, listen to this, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every president, every government official, I mean, just put names there. Kim Jong-un, Bill and Hillary bowing before Jesus. Every dictator, every military leader bowing before the king. Every pope, every false prophet, every cult leader all bowing. 
Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, every wealthy bowing. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing. And you know what we have done here in a microcosm form this morning? When we sing, we unite our voices and sing to this God. We give to this God. Some of you showed up early to serve this God. Some of you are training your children to fear and love this God. We are showing, we are on display. This is what Ephesians is going to start to unfold. We are on display what God is doing in the world. God is making everything new. Matter of fact, kings were warned about this all the way back in Psalm 2. He says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In verse 12, listen to what it says. Kiss the sun. The idea there is worship the sun. Bow down like he has a ring and kiss the sun. Worship the sun. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him in the sun. God's justice will be restored everywhere. No one is getting away with evil. It is only now. It's just a matter of time. So this is what he's doing. Look at verse 11. We'll end here. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. We'll talk more about that next week. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We who deserve wrath are not only pardoned, but the true son has taken our place and died. And this is over the top. And then in the true son, we are gifted with his inheritance as true sons. Sons, it's gender specific because of how the inheritance was distributed. And all of God's people can say this, as it said three times, to the praise of his glory. Richard Koken applies this passage by saying this. It's precisely because our God has planned everything and has everything under his control that Christians can relax and not worry. There is a certain and glorious future awaiting believers, even as we struggle now with personal failures and addictions or debilitating physical and mental conditions or miserable jobs or unemployment or painful singleness, loveless marriages, divorce or widowhood, whatever we face, Christians can be sure that already and forever we will live in unity under Christ to the praise of his glory. I'm going to invite the music team forward. And I'll end with this sort of illustration. There is usually a larger story within which our smaller stories take place. Okay, now track with me on this. For instance, a woman could be telling you how disappointing her ride home from work was, the traffic, the weather, the impatient commuters. Right, that's what she's telling you. But what she is really upset about happened before she even went to work when she found out that her 16-year-old son had been caught doing something foolish last week. And on top of it, his response was to blame everyone else, the other students, the teacher, and the circumstances. That frustration was set into a long-term frustration of just overall disappointment and numbness with life. It's never just about the commute home. But that same woman might be telling you how poor the traffic, the weather, the commuters were, 
but that she took that delay as God's goodness, listened to a helpful podcast and prayed with thanksgiving for her son because she found out last week that her son did do something foolish. So you expected that detail to change, didn't you? No, but now her posture is different. But his response was one of teachability and personal responsibility, and that gave her hope that her effects to lead him spiritually were having good results. It's rarely about the commute home. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 is doing. It's taking a smaller story, the drive home, our individual conversion, and it places it in the larger picture of the church and an even larger picture of pre-creation and an even bigger picture of what God is doing for the fullness of time for eternity future. It's never just about the commute home, is it? Let's pray.